welcome back to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. Today we have three guests on the program, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time with chit-chatting in the beginning because I think we have more important things to discuss. Um, Today we are going to talk about a new book that's come out, and it's called Survivors, Shocking True Stories About America's Pursuit of Police Transparency and Justice. And the the man of the hour who, who coordinated all of this, this is an anthology. Um, so each chapter is written by a different author telling a different story. But Dennis Griffin retired from law enforcement in 1994 after 20 years. So then he went to being a writer. So he authored several books. He's he's known very well throughout the throughout the country for his true crime books and mysteries and and even, you know, telling other people's stories. So Denny, welcome. Well, thank you, Delilah. A pleasure to be with you. Well, let me let me just touch base with you first. Um, how did this book come about? Why why did you felt compelled to to pull this all together? Uh, it goes back actually several years from some of the shows we've done on uh, on our Crime Wire podcast, and over time we interviewed uh, several people who had lost loved ones to murder or suspicious death or suspicious circumstances. And we encountered a a lot of those people who had issues with how the investigations or their cases were handled. Um, In certain cases, their evidence uh, seemed to have been overlooked or not pursued. Uh, Possible crime scene uh, was not properly processed and those types of issues. And, these people, when they tried to get information from the police regarding how the investigation unfolded and what was actually done, um, in, in many cases were stonewalled under uh, and their personal requests and even FOIA requests were exempted from the police uh, because of the open case exemption. So uh, people were very frustrated. They couldn't get any information. They couldn't get answers to their questions. And they had these doubts uh, about how the case was handled, and they became very frustrated. And and as I started um, over the years, actually, talking to these various folks, I became – and I'm I'm very pro-law enforcement, but uh, I became concerned about some of the issues that were raised. And then the the more I dug into it, I I found that it was a a broader issue uh, than I had originally thought. And I I talked to some other people, and I I said, you know, maybe we should try to bring some attention and some public awareness to these problems. And if we could get uh, some momentum behind us through the the public, we might be able to pursue reforms to the system that would help to balance the playing field and make it a little easier for the uh, survivors of these uh, deceased individuals to try to get answers to their questions and some resolution to the case and and justice for their lost loved ones. So that that was the motivation behind the book. Well, and I might just quickly add that 
this isn't just happening in New York, Chicago, L.A. This is kind of a broad stroke all across the country, don't you think? We've we've interviewed a lot of people over the years. Plus, I, I just want to make mention as well that you started the Transparency Project, which is uh, taking place on Facebook. It's it's a closed group, so it's it's not open to the public. But people have flocked to that group and brought their resources, brought their stories together. So that was kind of, I think, a catalyst for for pushing forward on this for you. It it was. When when the idea I floated the idea to begin with to see if there was interest, if, if there was any interest in it. And the response I got was very positive and people who um they didn't seem to have a voice. They were, you know, just frustrated, and they kept hitting stone wall after stone wall, trying to get answers to their their lingering questions. And um, and the enthusiasm was really overwhelming. So that convinced me that the project was worthwhile and something that needed to be pursued. Absolutely. Um, well, our other two guests today, we have Patricia Caristo, who is the executive director of NIA's Resource Center for Victims of Violent Death. And she brings years of experience in police and private investigation, teaching investigation courses, developing an investigator apprentice training program, working on cold case investigations at no charge to families, and volunteering many hours to victim advocacy agencies. And our other guest is Monique Willis, who is the CEO and founder of Mama on a Mission Incorporated, which advocates for her son, Alonzo, and other families of homicide victims. They help families with emotional support, awareness of services, providing resources, and organizing community activities to solve crimes. These are very busy ladies. I, I've got to say that. And the mission that both of them are are going on is something that can be very overwhelming. Um, but it's something that needs to be done, and they have stepped up to the plate, and they're they're doing it. I'm going to go to Pat first. Tell me a little bit about um, you know how how you became involved in this project, and why was it important for you to to step in? Thank you. Um, I always say way too much, so I'm trying to edit as I'm thinking about you. How I got involved is, is I've known Denny um, from other projects and, and working on the Caitlin Arquette murder case for years, and he asked me about participating in this, uh, and I was honored and pleased to do that. Uh, but my work with victims came out of my work as a private investigator trying to work on unsolved cases. Many, many, many families never get to know who, what, when, where, or how about what happened to their loved one. And I started doing it uh, a little at a time here and there. That became my primary focus, and we took the investigations agency and made it a nonprofit agency, and now we focus on meeting the needs of, of the families and loved ones who have had their loved ones taken, and I don't do as much investigation now as I've 
did in the past. So did you move you move more into advocating for these families? Do you how how does that come about? Walk me through. You know, I, I came to you. This is this is my case. What are you going to do for me? And that's interesting how they come <clears throat> how they come to us. Um, they have to know we exist, and even though we've been in existence since 2012, we're not well known. Um, but we get referrals from law enforcement. We get referrals from the district attorney's offices. We get referrals from counselors, um, from other people, and our website is bringing people. And when they come to us, it's interesting as to where they are in their process. We're recently getting lots of brand new clients where the loss has occurred. And it's not a loss. They didn't lose anyone. Their loved one was taken. When the taking took place uh, within weeks or or days, they have one set of needs, uh, and they can't listen to advocacy and information and groups that will help them. They have an immediate set of needs that is beyond understanding. Uh, but then other families, as they're in the process, we help them, we go to court with them, we refer them to agencies that they might need, we write letters to creditors because when the uh, person who earns the money in the family is taken, there's no money, but bills have to be paid. We'll write letters of advocacy. Um, we refer them to first go get a medical checkup because your body goes out of whack and they need some medical support. Uh, sometimes we have a mom who calls and says, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to make for dinner. And we'll talk about what to make. In that moment, making dinner is the most important thing and in another call three hours later, it's, I need you to go to court with me. Um, it's a variety of needs and immediacy of needs that vary. Pat, how many volunteers do you have in your organization that help you? Actually, very few. Uh, our staff is myself and three part-time victim advocates. Uh, we have a board of directors, and the volunteers that we have help us with special projects. We had a victim's memorial run uh, in July, I think it was May, um, and we needed help for that. And then at holiday time, we have what we call our snowflake memorial. Um, we don't celebrate Christmas because it's, it's, it's not a time for celebration, but it is a time for remembering. So we call it our snowflake remembering with the idea that each snowflake is unique and different. And so we refer to our loved ones as the snowflakes. Uh, we need volunteers for that. But doing the actual work, there are four of us. Well, and I'm assuming you can always use more help. And I think the point that we were talking about off air um, is so many people out there think that what they have to offer an organization or a cause or a mission is insignificant. But I'm, I'm here to tell you what 
whatever talent you have, they will find a place for you. I can almost bet on it. So, you know, if, if you think because your interest is cooking, it's not, it, how does that translate? Well, I think Pat just said that. One person, the only thing she could think of that she needed right now was a meal, what to have for dinner. That's a place where someone could step in and make this person dinner um, or do it on a regular basis. So don't think that your talent is insignificant. Step up to the plate and offer your time, offer your talents to these organizations that need you very badly. Wouldn't you agree, Pat? I do, and we, we have a little brochure that we give out for neighborhoods. What can you do after there's been a murder? It can be as simple as if the family is having open house day or meetings with law enforcement day at the home, and it happens to be the same day that the trash needs to be put out or is out, to move the trash cans to allow for parking. It, it's simple, but that can cause a major problem. So being aware of the needs and thinking about what would I need uh, if that happened to me, bringing over a meal, or just being aware of what's going on in your neighborhood. Great point. Monique Willis, give us a little background on Mama, Mamas on a Mission, I'm sorry, and what brought you to this project? Mama on a Mission started, um, technically they started April the 5th, 2014, when my only son, Alonzo Thomas IV, was murdered. Um, my mission started immediately, trying to figure out what happened, who did it, who I could talk to, what happens next in my life. And then I realized that my mission wasn't just for me, it was for other families. Okay. I'm Excuse sorry, me? I I think we missed a little bit of the conversation, you're, you're phone kind of cut out so if you would if you would just repeat the the last portion of what you were saying um that i realized that my mission just wasn't for me it was for other families that when i'm in the community letting people know about my son's unsolved homicide there's other families out there with other unsolved homicides who are not able or willing or in that process in their life want to be out in the community letting people know the struggles and the needs and wanting to get involved how so quickly were you – I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So we're Go not ahead. here just for Alonzo. We're here in the community for other families of homicide victims, bringing the awareness of different unsolved homicides and just helping families through that process. And you're in the Kansas City, Kansas or Missouri? Missouri. Missouri, okay. I, I wanted to be sure. Um how quickly did were you able to mobilize people and get resources together to to begin this organization to help others that you're trying to help yourself? It started pretty well. Families and organizations they approached me first because I was a mom. I was really just a mama on a mission. I wasn't really incorporated. I didn't start an organization. I was just being in the streets for my son. So I had um, different organizations that approached me trying to assist me, but it was after that one meeting or two, it was over with. It wasn't an ongoing process. So with my morning mission, we're do differently is that we're ongoing, that we're going to be in the community on a regular basis. We're going to make sure that your loved one's name is going to be mentioned on a regular basis. 
we will bring out, have flyers in the community and put them on social media to let people know that the homicide is still unsolved. It's not just a one-time conversation or, or a one-time canvas. I mean, whenever the family wants a canvas, we can go out and hit the streets with flyers and let people know. So we're going to be consistent with it and keep it out there and keep the names and faces out in, communi- out in the community. What do you what do you, what are you finding within your organization is the largest need when people come to you and they say I need such and such what is the the greatest need Um the well, money because a lot of people we help with funeral arrangements and services and we donate to the funeral homes to help families bury their loved ones and a lot of people are not have no insurance no money you know, they're paycheck to paycheck, day to day, trying to survive. So helping those families lay their loved ones to rest and donating money to the funeral homes. And once the funeral is over with, having that communication with the police department and having them police the police department returning phone calls or having them communicate with the families, understanding that, and also have, having the families understand that the police, their schedule is not a regular nine-to-five schedule. They also need to be aware of their on and off schedules and their day shift, night shifts, and being on call. So having that communication and knowing the resources available and, you know, keep them informed of try to figure out they are, they are working, but they're just not on the same schedule that you're on. What kind of roadblocks have you run into, if any? Many roadblocks. Um, most of them have been communication. You know, some mm-hmm. people saying they're going to do something, and if that falls through, phone calls not being returned. Basic, a lot of the communication process of it. I see, yeah, and I think that's probably pretty standard across the board as well. Denny, back to you again. Um, in, in hearing the the issues that these ladies have brought up and, and started their organizations based on um, – what would you what would you say about the numbers of unsolved homicides out there and and why would there be so many well i've I've got to say that i I don't have the stats right in front of me, but I've seen them and the the numbers of unsolved homicides are in in my mind staggering uh, in the hundreds of thousands and another Another thing that that's just the declared murders, homicides. Um, a, another issue that uh, that people are having is with suicides. Now we know there's a suicide epidemic, and it's very concerning. However, I have seen a number of cases that have been ruled as suicides with little to no investigation, and there's substantial evidence that that death may not have been a suicide. Yet it's uh, it, it's determined that, like I say, with little or no investigation, so those numbers are not included in the uh, the unsolved homicide stats. And I don't know; I can't uh, give you a, a reason why there are so many cases uh, unsolved cases. Uh, I do remember that the stats I saw were that years ago the closure, the, the solve rate for homicides was higher, much higher than it is today. Now, wh- whether that is uh, because there are more homicides, manpower is stretched, a lot of agencies are understaffed, 
and they don't have the resources and, and personnel or financial resources to do things that, that may need to be done or should have been done uh, in, in particular cases. I think that plays some role in the uh, in the large number of unsolved homicides. Um, and it, it's really a shame. I know everybody is you know, interested in money, no matter what agency you look at, they're, they're understaffed, under, uh, underfinanced, underbudgeted. But um, it, I think that also contributes to the issue of uh, these unsolved cases. Can, can I add something to what Denny just said, Delana? Absolutely. Um, I, before I was what I am now, I was a police investigator for years and, and a homicide investigator and prior to, I'm not sure the year, 80s, maybe 90s, the, the homicide solve rate was in the 90%. And that was, sadly, because you were usually killed by someone you knew. It was always a very close relationship between the killer and the victim. But as our society has changed with drugs, gang activity, killings for no reason, the solve rate in some areas is down way low. That's because there is no connection to the death and the, and the reason, and therefore you can't find the killer and because you can't find the link and people will not come forward. And that's part of the problem. Um, it, it's, it's a change in society. It's a change in the Respect for human life, I, I'm not even sure how to explain it, but there is a difference in the percentage of solving because people are killed now with no link to the killer and for no reason. Well, and Pat or, or Denny, either one, do you feel like because of that, that a case, if the case is going to the district attorney, does that case need more concrete evidence than, than say, something that's very obvious if it was someone that the victim knew? Is the case is handled differently? It's a problem of finding witnesses willing to come forth, um, and that's hampers law enforcement. Um, there is no link. Uh, a drive-by shooting, uh, unless there's a witness, you have no idea uh, who may have pulled that trigger. The interesting thing is, why did they do it? It is a gang initiation. It is a prank. It is, uh, again, a lack of respect for human life, and people think that's a fun thing to do. How is that going to be solved? It's it's very difficult. And if it's a gang killing, there there will not be witnesses willing to come forth. So it puts law enforcement in a very difficult situation. And Delilah, um, if I could add to that, uh, I, I think uh, going along with what Pat just said, uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a book with a former Hell's Angels boss. And I've been learning a lot from him. And he tells me that... Uh, for their gangs, their motorcycle clubs, outlaw bikers. He said their their uh, strong beliefs and their code was basically you never cooperate with the police. If they come and interview you, 
you tell them nothing, you don't interfere with them, but you don't cooperate either. And uh, and as Pat was saying, pe- getting people to come forward and and testify or, or uh, give testimony against uh, uh, the perpetrator or help to identify the perpetrator uh, with these gang issues, uh, I agree totally that that has really uh, hurt the uh, the police and their investigative efforts. And this is well, and about that as well. I, I, I was go ahead, Monique. I was just going to ask you how, with this being said, the surviving families when they come to you and this is their type of case, how are their needs different? Are they? Well, I can I can actually speak for my particular case. This it's been five years that it's unsolved, and as far as the police communication and the community communication. He was, Alonzo was around people that he considered his friends. He was in a house around the corner from where we stay. So there were, it was a Saturday afternoon, 1 o'clock p.m., beautiful day, lots of people outside. So people seeing things, people saw things, people are aware of things. And it's just really about together and speaking up and communicating with the process and knowing the process that once you speak to the police, you have to speak to the attorneys, you have to speak to the district district attorney's office. There's constant communication to follow through and going to court, and people just don't want to want to go through that process. And and since we're speaking about it, let's go let's go into your case because you you wrote about Alonzo in chapter 23 of the survivor's book. Um, Let's go briefly over what happened and where is the case today. The case today is open. They say it's open. Um, They say it's not closed. It's just open and just waiting for people to speak up in the community. They do not consider it. Well, like you said, there were people all around. Mm -hmm. No one in the neighborhood will talk about this. Is that what what I'm hearing? From my understanding, there's people that they spoke to. Um, because it, it is an open investigation, there's very little to no information they will give me. So from my understanding is that people, some people did speak up, some people did say some things, but I don't know exactly how much was said and what else they need in order to finish the process. Have they alluded to you that there's a suspect at all? They alluded to me that there were a couple suspects. From my understanding, there was maybe three up. It was com- conversations from one to three people in the vehicle. But that was rumor, but it, KCPD did not confirm or will not confirm. Right, right. Can well, I do you add feel- Oh, go ahead, Pat. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to support Monique in that... Um, couple of ways where answers may come forth is that in some cases when the offender in in Alonzo's case or a witness in Alonzo's case that may be reluctant gets in trouble with law enforcement Mm -hmm. when another matter they may be willing to then come forth and use their information about what happened in Alonzo's case to save their own skin. Right. And then, and then bring it forth. And sometimes we get some solvings that way. And it's very unsatisfactory, but it does sometimes bring forth answers. 
That is my understanding. That's why I heard, but I don't. I don't want to wait that long. <laughs> I, I I totally understand. You should not have to wait that long. And I, I wanna. I, I did this with a parent the other day, and they said law enforcement will not tell me what I want to know. I I want to say this. Uh, I, I'm a victim advocate, so I'm there for the victim, but I'm also former law enforcement, and I was involved in these cases. It's not that law enforcement will not. They cannot. Right. They cannot by law and by the process of the investigation. And sometimes when families know it's not that they just will not but can't, it takes a little bit of the sting away. But, yes, you're right. You should not have to wait five years and Denny will tell you that I'm working on an unsolved homicide that's 30 years old. From mm-hmm. 1989, an 18-year-old girl was shot and killed, and we still don't have an answer, and we are still looking. So, no, no family should have to wait one year, five years, 30 years. And I don't think they should have to wait that long, except they know the people that around them knows. And these are people that were friends, like you said, a lot of the homicides may occur because of people that they do know. Yes. It's frustrating. Obviously, it's very frustrating, not only for for the victims and the families, but it's frustrating for investigators as well. Um, because nothing, I, I don't think anything would be more uh I can't think of the word destructive maybe than than taking a case to court and and losing it on a technicality that I guess would be just awful um it it gets the hopes of the victim's family up because they feel like this is this is going to finally be over I'm finally going to see justice and then have something thrown out because someone did something wrong very insignificantly, but it was very significant to the the outcome of the case. Do you run into that very often, Pat? Yes, and that's one of the reasons why law enforcement is reluctant and sometimes to, even though it looks like the person did it or we're pretty sure they did it or we're almost positive, you can't take that to court. And if you take it to court and you charge wrongly, and then there's an acquittal. You can never recharge. So as long as it's still open, there's that possibility. But I, I would like to be supportive of Monique and all of the other parents and loved ones dealing with this. For five years, she's wanting an answer to what happened, to who killed her son. And she has to do every day with answering questions that law enforcement has, of, then there's hearings. Do I go to the hearing today? It's, it's a preliminary, it's a basic hearing. Nothing is going to happen, but if I don't go, then the court may look like I don't care what happened to my son, so I've got to go. So I've got to get up, get my other kids ready, get my life ready, take off from work, have enough money to pay gas to get down to the courthouse, find parking, go and sit for hours in procedures where you really can hear what's going on. Sometimes the offenders uh, or other people are there that are not on your side, and then you have to go home at the end of the day and then decide how to get on with the rest of the day, cooking meals, doing your laundry. Life doesn't stop even though your heart 
has been pulled out of your chest. And people don't know these difficulties that the families have to go through. And it goes on for years. You probably won't get a trial for three years if you do get a trial. And your life is on hold. It is a terrible, unfair process that these families have to go through. Monique, what would you like to say in response to that? I mean, she's correct about all that. I mean, just by being five years unsolved, I still have to go to work every day, nine to five. Not even with the court process, just figuring out day-to-day life just for me personally. And then also helping other families because I also have an understanding of how hard and difficult that it can be to be able to do things day-to-day for, for myself. So therefore, I know it's hard for them as well. So I am willing to be there for others to help relieve some of their stress, to help some of their issues. So everything she said was right on point. I mean, it's a a day-to-day struggle to maintain life. And to, I mean, Lonzo was my only child, so so now it's just me. He left behind two grandchildren, so two of my grandchildren, so his legacy will still live on. So being there for the babies and being there for for their for their mothers and helping them out as well as far as I can to because knowing their father's not there, so taking on that extra role and responsibility. So it, it's a very difficult process and journey. Monique, thank you. Yes, thank you very much for saying this because there's so many people probably listening to this this broadcast today that are in a similar situation. And maybe you can describe how why was it so important to you to write this chapter for this book to tell Alonzo's story. Um, I'm told that when I tell my story, that my story is similar to other people's story and it helps others. And I am always willing to help others in their time of need. So if me opening my story up to others, maybe could help them up to that they're not alone. Because when something happens to you, you feel like it's just you. But when you understand it's not just you, there's other people in your situation that are going through the same struggles as yourself. So if I can share my story to help someone else with their journey, I'm all for it. Monique, who is there for you? Who is your support? Where Who's are you getting team? getting that support system? I have different people around me that will, may help me with different things, but I am very um, internal. I'm very introvert. I don't really like to bother people. So a lot of it is I hold it. A lot of it I I know I probably shouldn't, but a lot of it I do hold it in that it may take the littlest, smallest, stupidest thing for me just to let it all out. But a lot of it is really internal. Monique, may I intrude here just a moment to say that I'm going to send you my number if you want to call at any time just to say, I need a shoulder, I need a hand, I need a hug. I just need to unload. I'm willing to listen, and it would be my honor to... uh, to just share a little bit with you, and I am so impressed with how you are dealing with this. Uh, I wish people could know what a hero you are. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Absolutely. And, you know, when I've, I've worked with a missing persons organization for a long time. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed about the, the families and a lot of, a lot of the missing person cases turn out to be unsolved homicides after recovery is made and the cases still go on. So we don't just stop right there. But it amazes me at the resilience of these people and how how the the need to give back and the need to step out and help others in the same situation. I see it year after year. We have a national missing persons conference in Wilmington, North Carolina every year. And it's a place where there's a lot of educating done, but there's also a lot of family time. And, and you can always tell a first time family because they gravitate, you know, everybody else gravitates to them and it's kind of like pulling them into the nest. And I've heard it time and time again, how helpful that was. So I can't stress enough how, how important the organizations that both of you ladies have created, um, how important they are to the surviving families and, and, getting them through a day-to-day process, just knowing that they're not alone. Thanks, Delilah. Well, Pat, I, what I would like to do now is briefly go over the case that you wrote about in, in the Survivor's book. What It was a 30-year-old case. Let's talk about that. Uh, at the time I got involved with Caitlin's case, I was working as a regular private investigator, and I had an office in a building where there was an attorney that was starting to look at random drive-by shootings. In 1989, that was kind of a new thing, uh, drive-by shooting things, and that attorney uh, looked at the idea of going against the uninsured motorist clause in the vehicle coverage, and that was able to get some recompense for families in unsolved homicides. And uh, in Albuquerque in July of 89, a young girl was shot, and the police called it a random drive-by shooting. Uh, That family made contact with that attorney. That attorney hired me to get information about how to pursue the uninsured motorist aspect of it. So I did routine investigation uh, on uh, scene evaluation, uh, accident reconstruction with with a person who does that, uh, trying to get records. We couldn't get records, that kind of thing. And in doing that, I found some information that was interesting to me uh, about a man who had been found at the scene But that information didn't seem to be anywhere, and the woman who, the mom who wrote the book, Lois Duncan, her, that's her writing name, but her family name was Lois Arquette, didn't seem to know about that man that was at the scene. And uh, also, I was teaching other investigators how to investigate, so I was using the case as, okay, there's this information about a man found at the scene, but there's incomplete information. As an exercise, how would you proceed against that? So we did it as purely an investigative training exercise, learned all kinds of information, and 
Mrs. Arquette, as Lois Duncan was on the Sally Jesse Raphael television show years ago, and she was talking about the case and never mentioning any information about this man. And she wrote a book that was very well received and known and recognized called Who Killed My Daughter? So at the end of the show, they said, here's an 800 number if anybody has any information. I was just watching it as an interested person in the show, and then I said, what? I have information. So I called, and that became, in 1992, my formal investigation relationship with the Arquette family, the investigation relationship, and now a caring relationship with the family continues to this day. Um, Caitlin's case is still unsolved. Uh, Caitlin has was killed. Lois has died. We say that they are together and they now know have the answer to who killed Caitlin, but the rest of the family doesn't know and society doesn't know because we should know who has killed a citizen of a city. It's an it's just an amazing case how it could go on for thirty years. It's it boggles my mind to hear these kind of things. Denny, um, what kind of things have you learned over the process of coordinating this book? I know you've you've worked as co-author with a lot of individuals and written several several books with other individuals, but how many total authors does this book have? Twenty three. And was there are, was this a different process for you? It was yes. I had never done this before, and I well, let me, in the way of background, I, I I mentioned earlier that when I first floated the idea of doing this, the, the response was overwhelming, and in fact, um, I was getting so many people who wanted to participate that I was afraid the book would never get finished, that the uh, we'd never be able to finish it. So I, I stopped accepting interested contributors. I just was afraid we were overdoing it. But what happened after we got into the process, a lot of the people found out that they just couldn't do it. They couldn't write the story. They couldn't relive the pain. And several dropped out. Uh, in fact, we had almost a 50% uh, rate of the uh, initial uh, people who had expressed interest did not finish. And I want to say that is nothing derogatory against them. It, w their heart was in the right place. They just didn't have uh, the stamina and the ability to, to cope with reliving the case and going through all the details and so on. And um, it, it's perfectly understandable. And I learned that these people who are going through these traumatic experiences need help. And that's why it's so important what Pat and Monique are doing, because the people need support. And I think Pat mentioned at the start of the program that the agencies like hers are not that well known. And, and it's really critical, I think, to get the word out to people. There are so many people going through this that have lost loved ones to these uh, unsolved cases and suspicious uh, death cases. And a lot of them 
are not aware there's help. And I'm really hoping that as the book reaches more and more people, uh, that that will be another thing, uh, a positive thing, that people will get the idea there are places, there are groups, there are organizations that will give them a hand and support them, and they don't have to do it alone. So I'm certainly hoping that that's a, a side effect of this book, in addition to the issues of transparency, that, that there, people will learn there is help out there, and all they got to do is uh, send an email or pick up the phone and, uh, and, and get that help. Well, Denny, let's talk about where to buy this book. You know, it's, 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 in my opinion, it's a very important book for the reasons that you just talked about. But it's also important in the, in the stance that 23 authors took their time, relived the most awful traumatic experience of their whole lives, and they put it down on paper so others can benefit from their knowledge and their experience and perhaps, you know, not, not be so out in the dark because like you say, there are organizations that will help you. And I think that in itself is, is an important aspect of this book that there are all these stories that need to be heard. And for whatever reason that people feel like they need to tell those stories, they're all included. Um, now, so where can listeners pick up a copy? Amazon.com. That's it? <laughs> no, I guess it goes down to the corner on that one. <laughs> it, it's, it's available at uh, most of your uh, online outlets, uh, and it can be ordered through local bookstores if it's not on a shelf. And uh, you just go into your local Barnes and Noble or whatever, and you you ask for survivors, and they will order it for you if you uh, if you want to do it that way. But the the, the primary uh, uh, place is Amazon, and like I say, other outline uh, online outlets as well. And I'd like Delilah just say that the stories in this book. The vast majority of the authors experienced some difficulties or issues with how their case was handled. And it's not a police bashing book. As I mentioned, I'm very pro-law enforcement, but I'm not pro-incompetence, and I'm not pro-cover-up. And their police, uh, 99.9% of them are great dedicated, hardworking individuals. But remember, you're dealing with human beings here. Uh, there's a lot of technical stuff and computers and all that, but you're still dealing with human beings. And we're not perfect. And there are some cases where perhaps the case was not properly investigated through maybe laziness, maybe incompetence, whatever. And those are the cases where the people are very frustrated. Uh, l let me give you an example of a case I work personally. Um, generally speaking, uh, I, I think most people have ever watched Law and Order or the, one of the tr crime uh, TV programs. 
know that when you're investigating a missing person or a homicide or a suspicious death, um, among the first things you should do is talk to the people last known to have seen that person. If it's a missing person, the last people they were with, the person they were with, and if it's a, a death case, the again, the, the last people to have seen the individual, and even a, even a potential suicide, you still want to talk to, you know, to find out what the person's frame of mind was and so forth. So it, at some point, fairly early on, that's that's one of the things that you would uh, suspect the investigator to do. So the case I have, uh, I've been working on it since 2010. Uh, it's a 2007 death case, and the last person, one of the last persons known to have seen the deceased alive, has yet to be talked to by civilian law enforcement. Now, I, I have, I, I can't really offer an explanation for that, but I did find out that the investigator who originally was assigned the case came in with a, uh, a mindset that the deceased was a homosexual and kind of got what he deserved. He was living a dangerous lifestyle and, um, you know, he, he took the risk and he paid the price for it. It turns out there's no evidence of that. And yet the, the case, in my opinion, was mishandled from the get-go because of the mindset of the investigator when he started uh, his investigation. So... And, and there are numerous I, – I can't go into all of them. It would take you two or three shows to do that, but all the inconsistencies and questionable conduct. And those those are the uh, situations that we would like to see addressed that when when this happens, when when there is no real legitimate reason to not share some information and that – exemption to the FOIA request, the open case exemption, can be used as a cover-up. Uh, 99% of the cases are legitimate. There's a reason not to share the information. Nobody wants to see a case blown because the the cops divulge information they shouldn't. Uh, nobody's suggesting that. But when you, when you get some of these cases where it, it's just impossible to justify or and you need an explanation, why, did, why didn't you talk to this person? Why didn't you do this? Why wasn't evidence collected? Why wasn't there a crime scene uh, process? Those things, I, I think the the families are very frustrated about that they can't get that information. And in, in some of these cases, it looks like the uh, the fox guarding the hen house. In other words, the police agency involved is the one that decides who can see what. So if if there is an issue, if there may have been a problem, with the investigation, if they're, uh, they decide and they don't want it made public, uh, they can just say, we're sorry, it's an open case, we're not going to tell you anything. So those in those relatively few cases where there may have been a botched investigation, the, uh, the, the families are very frustrated that they can't, you know, they're just shut out. Uh, that, that's a real shame because everybody deserves answers. Everybody deserves resolution of some kind. So that's uh, that has turned into an issue uh, for a lot of these families. Well, thank Delilah. you for that, Danny, and thank you for for 
pulling this all together for all the many reasons it needed to be done. Um, Pat, and very briefly, can you think of anything else that you would like listeners to take away from this broadcast? Well, I want to add it to why Denny's book is also so uh, such a resource because uh, he refers to Molly's Law, which talks about bringing wrongful death actions in cases. Uh, people don't understand that you have the criminal justice system and the civil justice system. And while you may not get justice in the criminal court, there are times when you can get a kind of justice in the civil court. And Molly's Law talks about the time frame when such a case can be brought, and a governor in Illinois uh, extending the time frame because many families aren't willing to even consider something like that. And, and then when they do know that, oh, wait a minute, there's another avenue for me, too much time has passed. So the civil action of bringing a wrongful death case can be helpful in getting some answers in cases that seem un, un, where no justice has been afforded to the family. Excellent point. Monique, what would you like the listeners to take away from today's conversation? That there are organizations out there in the community that are willing and wanting to help. And because we are small and we are grassroots, we get very little to no attention or funding for that matter. So just a good Google research that for your city and your community could possibly give you the help that you need. And that people do also need to speak up on the behalf of the unsolved homicides and so give the family some justice and have their journey come to an end. Well, I want to thank all of the guests for for taking the time to come today and explain the importance of this book and what it is hopefully going to do for other people out there in the same situation. Again, the name of the book is Survivors, and you can get it through Amazon. I I highly encourage you to get a copy because, um, you know, you never know who you may run into that could benefit from the information in the book, if not yourself. So it, it's it's meant to be widely read, and it should be widely read. And if if the ladies haven't already, maybe they have it on their website. So, you know, you'd be able to go to their websites, which all of that is in the show notes. If you if you click on to the show, you'll see their websites there, as well as Denny Griffin's website. So, with. All of that being said, this has been such an enlightening conversation today and also very heart-wrenching to know that there are this many people out there that are just wanting answers. They just want the pain to stop. Um, So as you go about your everyday life today, just remember one thing and be kind to each other. 